You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's take the Word of God, brothers and sisters, and this afternoon we will read from the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1 and 3 and 11. We read this afternoon three sections from the first book of the Bible. Starting with Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And there we read what the Lord our God said and did upon the sixth day of creation. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then turning to chapter 3. We read now what transpired after the fall into sin. Genesis 3, beginning with verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And thirdly, from Genesis chapter 11, after the flood and as people of the earth are building a tower for security. We read the verses 1 through 9 of Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. But then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. text for the preaching this afternoon is the summary of God's Word 
concerning our triune God as we confess that in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. How are these articles, that is the articles of the Apostles' Creed, divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching of Scripture concerning our triune God can easily turn into a debate about proof texts. If you have ever had a Jehovah Witness at your front door, then you probably know how this goes. You might say to the Jehovah Witness, knowing of course what they believe, you might say, Jesus Christ is God. And you might point to John 1 verse 1, that well-known passage, proof text about the divinity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then the Jehovah Witness will come back at you and say, well, it's not what it says in my translation. In the New World Translation, it says the Word was a God. And so the debate and the discussion begins. And probably at some point in that discussion, the Jehovah Witness will come back with his own proof text, and he will say, well, look at Colossians 1, verse 15. He will read it from his Bible, and it will say that the Son is the firstborn of all creatures. And he will say, there it is. Jesus Christ is a creature, the first of all creatures. And you will look in your Bible, and the translation will be different, and so the debate will continue from there. But it's not always... Situations like that where you may have a Jehovah Witness at the door that the discussion and debate and, and the pointing at this proof text and another proof text come up. It may also be in the course of your own devotions, perhaps at the dinner table or at a Bible study. And you are studying certain passages like John chapter 14 where Jesus himself says, If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And you say, how can Jesus say that? Are not the Father and the Son equal? Do we not very clearly confess that? Look at the Athanasian Creed, for instance. Isn't there another text in that same Gospel of John in which Jesus Christ says the Father and I are one? And so you go from one proof text to another and you wrestle with them and you discuss them as you grapple with this teaching of our triune God. Now, brothers and sisters, these questions, looking up the proof texts, grappling with them to come to the proper understanding, that's all important. It's good. 
But it's also important to remember that God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for your comfort. It's a revelation for assurance. It's a revelation to, to give us the strength to face another week of work. And this afternoon, it is good that we take note how the Catechism links these things together. In answer 25, the Catechism says that we believe that God is triune simply because He has revealed Himself. Focus on that word, revealed. For it's not the first time that the Catechism uses that word. Actually, in the previous Lord's Day, we confess, question and answer 21, that true faith is accepting all that God has revealed in His Word. So that's already one thing. Our triune God is an article of faith based on the revelation of Scripture. But then, go back one more from 6 to 7, from 7 to 6, and there you notice in question and answer 19 that we read about the Holy Gospel, which God Himself first, and there comes the word again, revealed in paradise. Their gospel, which is good news for sinners, is linked to revelation, which in seven is linked to faith, which in eight is linked to our triune God. And this afternoon, this is how we hope to pull it all through, that the doctrine of our triune God is part of the gospel, part of the comforting good news for us sinners. And so I may proclaim to you our triune God, a reassuring revelation for us. We will see in the first place, there are three persons, one God, three works, but one purpose, and finally, one God and one everlasting eternal covenant. Turning back to Lord's Day 6 once more, we learn there that God himself first began revealing his gospel in paradise. Sometimes when people think about the word gospel, they think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the gospels. Indeed they are. But the gospel began long, long before Matthew or Mark ever wrote their scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God started already in paradise revealing Himself, including revealing Himself as triune God. You don't need to go to the New Testament to learn that God is triune. It starts already at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. And if you take your scripture and look there once more, we will see how the Lord does this. On the sixth day, what does God say? Then... God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. There is, brothers and sisters, but one God speaking here. Scriptures do not say, then the gods said, as the pagan religions often have it, that there were all kinds of gods, many, many different gods and some of these gods took care of one part of the earth and others other part. No. From the very first verses of Genesis, it is clear there is one God 
And this one God speaks on the sixth day and He says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now we've heard that verse so many times that it hardly stands out to us anymore. But since one God is speaking, would you not expect that He would say, let me make man in my image, in my likeness? It's normal grammar. It's a normal way of speaking. And yet here on the sixth day, the one God says, let us make man in our image. Right from the start, God reveals on the one hand He's one, but on the other hand, there is something about Him which cannot simply be expressed with one. We do not here yet know that there are three persons. That comes later. God reveals Himself over time, progressively. It's right there. The start on the sixth day, He would say, in paradise. And going on then to chapter 3, you notice that this is not just a one-time thing either. After the fall into sin now, the Lord makes garments for Adam and Eve and He clothes them in His fatherly love. And then the Lord God said, again, not the gods. No, one. The Lord God said, the man has now become, and then what do you read? Like one of us. There is that same manner of speaking again. A lot of things have changed. We're after the fall now. Death has entered the world. Sin, corruption. But God is the same. And He continues to reveal Himself as one. And yet, there is something about Him which cannot be fully expressed in one. We go forward to Genesis chapter 11. Now after another major event in the world, of re- in, the, in the history of redemption, the flood, Genesis chapter 11, Verse 6, the Lord said, one Lord, not the Lord's, the one Lord said, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Well, brothers and sisters, it is not by chance that within the first 12 chapters of Genesis, this happens three times. The Lord is saying something. He's revealing Himself. And then as you go on in the Scriptures, you will read more detail. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. Moses is speaking of the stubbornness, the sinfulness of the people, and he says, and I quote, Is this the way that you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father, your Creator who made you and formed you? See, now God gives a bit more. Now we understand that He is Father. But it does not stop there, for if you go on into the prophets, Isaiah chapter 9, that well-known passage that you will hear, sung to the sound of music as we enter the Christmas season, for unto us a son is given. But who is this son? He is, as the prophet continues, mighty God. So there, God the Father, God the Son. And if you continue in Isaiah, you will come to God the Holy Spirit too. For again, this time the prophet Isaiah is explaining how the people have been sinful, they've been rebellious, in spite of all the Lord's good blessings to them. 
And then the prophet says, yet they rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. He's speaking about the Lord. But then he says, yet he is grieved, they have grieved the Holy Spirit. And so, by the time that the Lord is finished revealing Himself in the Old Covenant, and He begins in the New, it's all really there concerning our triune God. All that remains is to, so to speak, draw it together, summarize it as our Lord Jesus Christ does, just before He's about to send into heaven. And He says, Go therefore, baptizing them into the name, notice one name, not names, into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Well, there it is, all captured in one verse. Now, brothers and sisters, there will always be objections, human objections to God's revelation. One common objection will come along the lines of logic, math. People will say, I I, I can't figure it out. One plus one plus one is three. One plus one plus one is not one. So how can it be? If there are three persons, and you can in that sense count them, Father, one, Son, two, Holy Spirit, three, then there must be three gods, right? That's just logical. I ask you, do you understand conception? Conception of a baby, the womb, the mother. There is mystery there brothers and sisters, how that that tiny little child is conceived and grows and is nurtured in the womb of the mother for nine months, and then, the Lord willing, you see that baby, and you look and you say, there's wonder. Can you explain all that? Even the smartest doctor, who may have degrees upon degrees upon degrees, they can't explain the wonder of a child, a little baby. And that baby is only one small, small little part of creation. Now, if we cannot explain one little part of creation, what makes us think that we are logically going to explain the Creator, God Himself, His very essence, who He is in Himself? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And therefore, He is definitely higher than our puny little minds can understand. We should not expect that we can logically understand God at all. Quite the opposite. There will also be objections based on certain Bible texts. One of them we mentioned earlier, John chapter 14 as Jesus is speaking to His disciples, and there, shortly before His death, shortly before then, He will also return to His Father. He says in the 14th chapter, You have heard Me say, I am going away, and I am coming back to you. If you loved Me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 
Jehovah Witness is going to point to a text like that and see, there it is. You say the Father and the Son are equal, but the Son Himself says they are not. If there is a book in the Bible, brothers and sisters, that speaks about the divinity, the fact that the Son is God in the full sense, the complete sense of the word, then it is the Gospel of John. From the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 1, through chapter 10, where the Lord Himself, our Savior, proclaims, the Father and I are one, verse 30. So when you ask, yes, but then why does Jesus say the Father is greater than I? Well, when does He say it? He says it as He is in His humiliation. He's coming to the deepest part of His humiliation, His death on the cross. And brothers and sisters, it is true. As the Scriptures declare, the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 2, that for a little while, concerning His glory, concerning His majesty, the Son, Jesus, was made lower than the Father. But He prayed, also in this book, John chapter 17, that the Father, after His death, would restore Him to the glory that He had with Him even before the creation of the world. You see, when you bring all the Scriptures together, then there is an explanation. It does all fit together. But that never takes away from the wonder of it all and the comfort in it. For what a blessing it is to know that our God is not fate with a capital F. Our God is not merely higher being. As it says in the Alcoholics Anonymous book, our God is not the force in the Star Trek or Star Wars sense of that phrase. And our God is not far away, distant, some God who created the world but then left it to its own devices. You want to know who our God is, brothers and sisters? He's Father. And do you want to hear about the Father's heart of our God? Then you need to read a part of the Bible like Hosea chapter 11. That's where you hear where God reveals who He is. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son. Do you hear the voice of the father there? But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They burnt incense to the images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Do you hear the voice of the father? Taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human compassion, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. And yet this father, because of the stubbornness of his children, he has to punish them. But you know, and every earthly father will know this, once a father, always a father, 
And that child is still your child. Even if there is straying away, even if there's rebellion, that child is still your child. And the Father's heart yearns. God the Father's heart yearns too. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over? How can I treat you like Adma, like Zeboim, little villages by Sodom and Gomorrah? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. This is our God, brothers and sisters. Not fate, not force. Father. It's revealed for your great comfort. God is also Son. And by adoption, as we heard this morning, we are God's children too. And so the almighty, eternal, only begotten Son is not even ashamed to call us brothers, sisters, siblings through the Holy Spirit. And He knows. He knows what it's like to be down here because He's been down here. He knows what it's like to face temptation because He has faced temptation, although He's never fallen like we do. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to cry because He suffered. Because He's even shed tears. He's not far away, distant, removed. God is Son and He knows what we go through. And He reveals Himself that way for your comfort. God is Spirit. He's a divine person, the Holy Spirit. Not as the Jehovah Witnesses teach that He's like the force or the strength in God's right hand. That's what they say. It's like the force, the strength. Well, you may have strength in your right hand, brothers and sisters, but that strength cannot grieve. That strength cannot counsel. That strength cannot guide or encourage. It's just a force. It's just a power by which you clench your fist. God, the Holy Spirit, is person. He's counsel. He encourages. He exhorts through the words of the Scripture. He comforts. He lifts up those who are downtrodden. This is your God. Not some kind of, some kind of divine magnetic power or something like that. No. Person. Divine person who says, watch out. Don't go that way. For there's danger. There's misery there. The Holy Spirit who says, look to the gospel for the encouragement that you need. And that leads us right into how this God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, yet one God, works for us and for our salvation. First, the Father. In our earthly human families, our fathers do a lot for us. Maybe we don't always see that at the moment when we're children growing up in the house. But later on, when we look back, Perhaps later on when we become father ourselves, you start to see all that your dad did for you. And it's a lot. But he's only a human, an earthly father with all of his shortcomings. Now, the heavenly father who has this worldwide Catholic family to take care of, it's not just a couple of us, Sometimes you see a large family and 
people say, well, how do the parents keep up with it all? Think about God's household. His Catholic worldwide household. And every one of his children needs to be taken care of. So far as their food is concerned, so far as their housing is concerned, so far as instructing them and disciplining them and encouraging them and all the things that a father has to do. And yet, without fail, not in some kind of generic, bland way, but personally as father, he takes care of every one of his children. That's your father, brothers and sisters. Not force not fate, but a hard-working, faithful father. But there's an enormous problem in our lives, and that's sin, and that needs taken care of too. And that is where God the Son focuses His attention. And sin is not just the deed of the transgression, of the iniquity, of the breaking of God's commandments, But sin also has the consequences, the mess, the misery that comes after it. And that, as you well know, is an enormous problem. And to take care of sin, brothers and sisters, is no small task. And yet, this is what God the Son has done for us. So that, even as we read in Psalm 51, And you cannot help but be amazed at a psalm like that on a day like this. That through the work of God the Son, we are cleansed so completely from our sin that we're whiter than those perfect, pristine white fields out there. A child said to me today, how can that be? There's nothing whiter than snow. Yet, we, in Jesus Christ, by the work of the Son, are even whiter than snow. And then the Holy Spirit, who focuses on our hearts to renew them, to to rejuvenate them, to redirect them. You know, there's a lot of work going on in the Lower Mainland in preparation for the Winter Olympics 2010. Roads are being built, they're, they're blasting through the mountains to expand the road up to Whistler. They're putting all these concrete structures for a new SkyTrain line. Hotels are being built and stadiums and who knows what all. Getting ready for a Winter Olympics is a massive project with a lot of work. Well, to renew one human heart, to renew your sinful heart, more work than all the preparations for the Winter Olympics 2010. That's what the Holy Spirit focuses on. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, works together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whenever there is a group of persons working, human persons, so often conflict. They work cross-purposes, or they work beside each other, or conflict gets in the way, but you never have that with your God. The three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because they are one God, they work in flawless, perfect harmony for you. 
and your salvation. And they continue to work. For, if you noticed in the catechism, there is almost a rhythm to answer 24. There's, there's an echo, there's a cadence there. God the Father and our creation. God the Son and our redemption. God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. God our. God our. God our. That is the echo of the theme of the covenant which the Lord has established with us. Even as he says through the prophet Jeremiah, I will be your God and you, you will be my people. You see, this almighty, merciful and marvelous God is your God by virtue of the covenant signed and sealed to you personally in your baptism. It's wonderful. It's reassuring to have a heavenly Father. But you know what's even greater, brothers and sisters? That you can know, and if you ever doubt it, you just look at your baptism and be reminded. You may know that that Father is going to be there working for you faithfully forever through all the ups and downs. He's not only your Father, He's your Father forever. It's wonderful to have God the Son as your Savior, but it's even more wonder-filling to know that this eternal Bridegroom will never leave you, never forsake you, for He is the mediator of an everlasting and eternal covenant. Not a temporary arrangement. An everlasting covenant. It is so good to have God the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And what a lot of work He has to do. But it's even more comforting, reassuring to know that that Holy Spirit will stick to the task until He shall finally be presented for God without blemish. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, your God, forever, by grace. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.com dot org.